Well, welcome to our Tuesday evening study of Revelation, going through Revelation verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and we're going to pick up where we left off uh, in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. We'd like to give a special greeting to our friends watching from Canada, from Afghanistan, from Vanuatu, and from different parts of the United States. We're glad that you're with us tonight. In Revelation chapters 4 and 5 that we've already uh, discussed, John recognized the church, but here in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, he doesn't recognize, as we read in Revelation 7, verse 9, the vast crowd too great to count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. Revelation 7, 9. Therefore, as we've already discussed, they can't be the church. That's just uh, impossible. They can't be the church. So who are these people described in verses 9 and 10 of Revelation chapter 7? We know the angels were thrilled to see these people when they arrived in heaven. Verse 12, Jesus said that when just one lost person is saved, all of heaven rejoices. I love that. All these beings, all these angels, they're rejoicing. There's a symphony. There's a there's a rally. There's such enthusiasm and such excitement when just one person comes to the Lord, whether that person is in Colorado or California, Vanuatu or Afghanistan, wherever it may be. The Bible says there is joy in the presence of the angels of God when one sinner repents, Luke chapter 15, verse 10. So these are the people who were lost but became followers of Jesus Christ during the tribulation. But, 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 but we need to remember that they are not the church. We are the church. We are the body of Christ. Those people who came to Christ during the tribulation, they are not the body of Christ. They're not part of the church. How do we know? Well, I'm glad you asked. These people stand before the throne, we read in verse 9. The bride of Christ, that's us, we sit on the throne. How do we know? Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. We've already discussed that. These people serve the Lord, verse 15, but the bride of Christ is served by the Lord. The Bible says in Luke 12, 37 and 38, the servants who are ready and waiting for his return will be rewarded. I tell you the truth. He himself will seat them put on an apron, and serve them as they sit and eat. Verse 38, he may come in the middle of the night or just before dawn, but whenever he comes, he will reward the servants who are ready. That's us. We are going to be served by the Lord. I don't know if you've ever been to a fancy restaurant. I think probably you all have, but decades ago, I had the privilege of going to a fancy restaurant. The restaurant doesn't have a sign out front, 
only the address, not the street name, just the number. And maybe you have passed by this restaurant. The number, the address is just 3333. You've been there. You know what I'm talking about. Not too many people have been there. And where is it located? Disneyland. That's right. It's an exclusive restaurant that Walt Disney designed. You can go online and read more about it. Very exclusive place by invitation only. And, uh, and, and the menu has no price. You just, you just order off the menu and that's kind of scary, but my way was paid, so I didn't worry about it. Uh, very exclusive. Maybe you've been to an exclusive restaurant, uh, but we're going to go to an even more exclusive feast, a banquet, if you will, when Jesus Christ is going to be waiting on us. How do we know? The Bible tells us so. The Bible says these people died of hunger, thirst, and scorching heat in verse 16. But never, never again, for all eternity, will they experience pain or discomfort. Not only will all of their physical needs be met, but their emotional and their spiritual needs will be met as well, verses 16 and 17. So be faithful in sharing the gospel, even if you're not seeing people respond. Why? Because the Bible says the greatest revival in the history of the world, not just since the first century, but since the time of Adam and Eve, the greatest revival in world history is going to take place after the uh, rapture, during the tribulation. So we saw in verse 9, I quote, a vast crowd too great to count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. The seventh seal of the tribulation begins a new series of judgments known as the seven trumpet judgments. So we've broken the seven seals, the title deed to uh, planet Earth, who is worthy? John wept until it was revealed to him that worthy is the lamb. Jesus is worthy. So let's pick it up. Revelation chapter 8. We'll read it beginning in verse 1. When the lamb broke the seventh seal on the scroll, there was silence throughout heaven for about half an hour. I saw seven angels who stand before God, and they were given seven trumpets. Then another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar, and a great amount of incense was given to him to mix with the prayers of God's people as an offering on the gold altar before the throne. Verse 4, the smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people, that's us, we're not, no, we're not holy because of what we've done or what we haven't done. We're holy because we are washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So the smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God from the altar where the angel had poured them out. Then the angel filled the incense burner with fire from the altar and threw it down upon the earth. Wow, what a picture. A mighty angel in heaven throwing this incense burner down to planet Earth. The Bible says thunder crashed, lightning flashed, and there was a terrible earthquake in verse 5. Verse 6, 
Then the seven angels with the seven trumpets prepared to blow their mighty blasts. The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down on the earth. One-third of the earth was set on fire. One-third of the trees were burned, and all the green grass was burned. Goodbye, golf course. Verse 8. Then the second angel blew his trumpet, and a great mountain of fire was thrown into the sea. One-third of the water in the sea became blood. One-third of all living, of all things living in the sea died, and one-third of all the ships on the sea were destroyed. Then the angel, then the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from the sky, burning like a torch. It fell on one-third of the rivers and on the springs of water. Verse 11, the name of the star was bitterness. It made one-third of the water bitter, and many people died from drinking the bitter water. Then the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and one-third of the sun was struck, one-third of the moon, and one-third of the stars, and they became dark. And one-third of the day was dark, and also one-third of the night. Verse 13, Then I looked, and I heard a single eagle crying loudly as it flew through the air. Terror, terror, terror to all who belong to this world because of what will happen when the last three angels blow their trumpets. Wow. Now, as we've studied on our pilgrimage through the book of Revelation, we've read of the ecstatic, exuberant, and exalting praise to God in heaven. I try to picture it, but my little mind, my little feeble mind can't begin to imagine it. But one day we'll experience and we'll see it. But suddenly, at the opening of the seventh and final seal on the scroll that we talked about, the title deed, For planet Earth, we witness silence throughout heaven for about half an hour in verse 1. Can you imagine the heavenly beings, the creatures, the angels stopped their praises? They were stunned. They were absolutely stunned at what was about to happen. You could have heard and you could hear a needle drop in heaven. Most of what happens in the rest of the book of Revelation is the result of the opening of this final seal, the seventh seal on this 15-foot-long scroll that Jesus and Jesus alone is authorized, is worthy to open up. This is the calm before the proverbial storm. Yet during this time, God is listening to the prayers of his children. He's giving his undivided and complete and total attention to the prayers of those going through the tribulation. Where are we? We are in a seven-year honeymoon with our Lord in heaven. And yet there are believers. We talked about that last week. The 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes that were evangelists, mightier than Billy Graham, mightier than Luis Palau, going around the world with the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God, still preaching the gospel 
and telling people, don't take the mark of the beast. Don't submit to the Antichrist. You can still call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. So God is listening to the prayers of these, going through these seven sealed judgments, the seven trumpet judgments to come, and then the final seven bowl judgments. And he's doing the same thing today. I love it. Every time you pray, you have God's complete and undivided attention. God, God is giving you his undivided attention. Why? The Bible tells us because he loves you. He loves you. He loves you so much, he designed the shape of your nose, the shape of your ears, how tall you would be, when you would be born, where you would be born, the color of your skin, all these things he designed. And God doesn't make any mistakes. He designed you just the way you are, and he loves you just the way you are. So may we be a people that pray. We see the impact and the power of answered prayer as the prayers of God's people are hurled back to earth from this censer. The prayers that God's people have been praying in verses 3 through 5. It's very possible that these trumpet judgments that include flowing blood, pelting hail, hailstones as big as 75 pounds, we'll see, consuming fire, describes what would happen in a nuclear holocaust. Now, I am not suggesting that we know for certain that this is a nuclear holocaust that we're about to study. It very well could be, but the Bible doesn't clearly state that this is a nuclear holocaust, bombs going off. For the only the second time in my life, most of you are too young. Almost all of you are younger than I am. But for the second time in my life, there is now talk about bomb shelters. I haven't heard about that since the 1950s in your backyard. In Kansas, there are, there are 600 and some, I forgot, 600 and some underground bunkers that were used to store tools of warfare during the Cold War. They've long since been abandoned, but they are deep underground, thick reinforced rebar and steel, and one entrepreneur bought them all many years ago, is now selling them. Uh, you can go online and see this for yourself. People are re refurbishing these, and there's a fence all around and guards and all the rest, and you can live in comfort deep underground in your bomb shelter with all your other friends that are trying to escape a nuclear holocaust. Well, we shall see. It's all folly. It's not going to work. But people are buying into, into that because that's the only hope they have. And so we don't know for sure that this is a nuclear holocaust, but somehow, in some way, uh, this next series of judgments can re will reflect what may happen through a nuclear holocaust. History confirms that every weapon system, since back in the very beginning of time when the weapons were clubs, every weapon system that has ever been developed has always been used. If you doubt my word, check with Sergeant Stevens, United States Marine Corps right here. 
He will confirm that. Therefore, it would be an aberration of history if, if all the nations of the world that presently have nuclear weapons, and a lot do that we don't read about, including Israel, which is common knowledge but not commonly published, fail to use them. Now, this passage may not refer to a nuclear holocaust. We don't know. But, but, but the detonation of a nuclear warhead does unleash a firestorm of about 250 mile per hour winds. You can go online and see the tests at the Bikini Atoll in New Mexico and other places. And upon speaking of the Bikini Atoll, a little island in the, in the South Pacific, upon striking the surface of the water, a plume of water shoots up thousands of feet into the air. You've probably seen the picture of the ships around and the sailors and the Marines with uh, their dark glasses on that that was going to protect them somehow from the nuclear testing they were so close to. And way up into the air and thousands of feet where the water then freezes because it is so cold and returns as hailstones. And an interesting thing, bigger hailstones than man, than humankind had ever seen before. Some of these hailstones weighed approximately 75 pounds returning to Earth. Isn't that interesting? We shall see later on. That is the exact weight of the hailstones that are going to rain down on planet Earth, as we read in the book of Revelation, written way before the atomic testing and then in, in Bikini Atoll and in New Mexico and other places around the world. In verse 8, a great mountain of fire does not refer to a literal mountain, but, 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 but rather to something that looked like a mountain. And it could be, it could be the mushrooming of a nuclear, of a nuclear cloud. Now, water, you all remember from fifth grade, I think it's fifth grade uh, geography, water covers about three quarters of the earth. The Atlantic Ocean contains about one third of the earth's water. It's also interesting, as I was doing some research this week, that on any given day, approximately one-third of all ships afloat at sea are in the Atlantic Ocean region, any given day. So this passage may refer to a specific site where the firing of weapons produces an ecological catastrophe, we read about in verses 8 and 9, but, but, but can we really take these judgments seriously? They're too far-fetched. Even Hollywood cannot come up with some of these things. Can we really take them literally? Well, as your notes say, just ask Pharaoh. It's interesting that above-ground nuclear testing has been banned due to the discovery years later of a certain radioactive substance called strontium-90. In fresh water supplies, rivers, lakes, what have you, um, the, the strontium-90 is, is found after a test of a nuclear device, verse 10. It's interesting that the Russian word for bitterness that we just read about in verse 11 is also not known wormwood in your old King James Bible. The Russian word for that is Chernobyl. Isn't that interesting? Now, I don't want to read too much into that. It's just, it's just interesting, verse 11. 
the people to whom John was writing understood wormwood. It's a plant that produces a bitter flavored oil. It's called absintha, and it's derived from wormwood, and it's forbidden in many countries. It's outlawed because it can cause mental problems. It can cause death. And the Bible says that after the Israelites traveled through the wilderness for three days without water, they dove into the first pool of water they came upon. I can picture them. Dusty, following the stinky camels and the sand coming up and just, just dirty. And they saw this beautiful oasis and they dove right into it. But, 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 but not so fast. The water was bitter. So the Bible says they called the place Mara, which means bitter. So God directed Moses to go down and cut down either a small tree. We don't know for certain. It was either a small tree or a branch off a tree and cast it into the bitter water. Immediately, the water became sweet, refreshing, healthy, good to drink. How do we know? The Bible tells us so. Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 through 27. It was the tree that made the water sweet. And what does the tree always represent in scripture? That's right, the cross. The tree always represents the cross. It's a picture of the cross. And, and, and when you add the cross, when you add the tree to the bitter water of your life, the result will be sweetness. So rather than trying to take some tweezers and pick out those impurities of our life, whether it be attitudes, whether it be uh, thought life, whether it be words, whatever it may be, rather than trying to pull the poison, let's just pour the good in. That's what Moses did. That's what Elisha did when his boys were hungry and there ended up to be some poison in the pot. You remember the story. When you add the cross to the, bitter of, uh, to the bitterness of your life, there will be sweetness. But, but in Revelation 8, just the opposite occurs. When those who reject Christ's work on the cross will drink from the bitter water of the tribulation, verse, thir- verse 11. So if a nuclear exchange took place in the summer, let's say in the summer here in Colorado, after all, We're new to Colorado, but I understand that the NORAD headquarters is located just down the road in Colorado Springs. Is that right? Maybe some of you have visited that. If the nuclear change took place here in Colorado in the summer, with Colorado being one of the targets, scientists project that the high temperature in the summer in Colorado in the western United States would be 15 degrees Fahrenheit. That's 17 degrees below freezing. Why? Because of the debris that goes up from a nuclear explosion into high up into the atmosphere, clouding the earth from the warm rays of the sun, the nutrients that the sun provides. Crops wouldn't grow. Starvation would result. It's what scientists have called for years a nuclear winter. Books have been written about this. Maybe... Maybe that's, what descri- that's what's described here in verse 12. Now, the Bible says a single eagle or angel. The Greek word for angel is angelos, a messenger. Some versions translate this as eagle. Some translate this as an angel. Either way, 
this angel or this eagle will fly through the air crying out terror, terror, terror to all who belong to this world because of what will happen when the last three angels blow their trumpets in verse 13. I can't help but but remember our very first Sunday when Robin and I just a few days after we moved from Hawaii to Basalt, Colorado, we were on our way to the orchard. We'd never been here before. We had to get directions and figure out where it was. We didn't know what we were looking for. And we, as we drove along uh, the old highway, Catherine Store Road, I believe that's called, right on the side of our car, right next to Robin, who was driving, she was in the passenger seat, was this beautiful, big, bald eagle just flying along, just flying slowly with us as we were coming straight down the, the road up along the valley here to the Orchard Church. It seemed like he was with us for a long time. In reality, it was probably just maybe 20 seconds or so. But he was flying with us and just leading us to the church. We thought it was so wonderful. We'd never seen the eagle since, but that first Sunday was great. And I picture that eagle, this single eagle flying through the air. Habakkuk used an image of an eagle to symbolize swiftness and destruction in the Old Testament book of Habakkuk, verse 1, verse 8. In other words, the eagle or the angel is saying the worst is yet to come. You think you've had it bad? Ah, you ain't seen nothing yet because the last three trumpets are way worse than the first four. The first four trumpets dealt with the natural. The last three trumpets will deal with the supernatural, specifically demonic activity. We're going to talk about Satan tonight. We're going to talk about demons tonight. And then we're going to end on a good note. Because after studying about Satan and demons, I just wanted to go take a shower. (laughs) So we're going to end on a good note. But let's pick it up. Revelation chapter 9, verse 1. Then the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen to earth from the sky. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. When he opened it, smoke poured out as though from a huge furnace, and the sunlight and air turned dark from the smoke. Then locusts came from the smoke and descended on the earth, and they were given power to sting like scorpions. They were told not to harm the grass, at least the grass that was left, or plants, or trees, but only the people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads, not the mark of the beast, the seal of God. Do we have the seal of God? Yes, we do. How do we know? The Bible tells us so. When you give your life to Jesus Christ, totally and completely, just the way you are, the Bible says he has sealed you. You can't see the seal, but he can. So, verse 4, only the people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Verse 5, they were told not to kill them, but to torture them for five months with a pain like the pain of a scorpion sting. I need to add here, it wasn't just a sting that happened once and it went away. The pain was excruciating for five solid months, day and night. It never left. Verse 6, in those days, people will seek death, but will not find it. 
They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Verse 7, the locusts look like horses prepared for battle. They had what looked like gold crowns on their heads, and their faces looked like human faces. They had hair like woman's, women's hair and teeth like the teeth of a lion. They wore armor made of iron, and their wings roared like an army of chariots rushing into battle. Verse 10, they had tails that stung like scorpions, and for five months they had the power to torment people. Their king is the angel from the bottomless pit, and his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek, Apollyon, the destroyer. Verse 12, the first terror is past, but look, two more terrors are coming. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice speaking from the four horns of the gold altar that stands in the presence of God. And the voice said to the sixth angel who held the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great Euphrates River. Then the four angels who had been prepared for this hour and day and month and year were turned loose to kill one-third of all the people on the earth. I heard the size of their army, which was 200 million mounted troops. Verse 17, And in my vision I saw the horses and the riders sitting on them. The riders wore armor that was fiery red and dark blue and yellow. The horses had heads like lions, and fire and smoke and burning sulfur billowed from their mouths. One-third of all the people on earth were killed by these three plagues, by the fire and smoke and burning sulfur that came from the mouths of the horses. Their power was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails had heads like snakes with the power to injure people. Verse 20, but the people who did not die in these plagues still refused to repent of their evil deeds and turn to God. They continued to worship demons and idols made of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that can neither see nor hear nor walk. Verse 21, and they did not repent of their murders or their witchcraft or their sexual immorality or their thefts. The Bible says in this chapter that when the fifth angel blew his trumpet, John saw a star in verse 1 that had fallen to earth from the sky and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Now, this event is in the past tense. The key here is this star that had fallen to the earth. This took place before John was given this vision on the island of Patmos. This took place a long time ago. So who is the star? It's Lucifer. It's Lucifer, also known as Satan, also called the Shining One. The Bible says that when Lucifer fell from heaven, God created him, when he fell from heaven, one-third of the angels went with him and became demons. How do I know? The Bible tells me so. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Revelation 12. 
the Bible says that the very worst of these fallen angels, these demons, who we see in Jude 6, left the place where they belonged, had relationships with women producing Nephilim. In the English, giants. We find this in the book of Genesis and in the book of Numbers. So God cast these demons into the abusos, the bottomless pit. This isn't the first mention of the bottomless pit in the Bible. Do you remember when, when Jesus was teaching and, and healing people and came upon a young man who was possessed by a number of evil spirits? Do you remember that story? He asked, who are you? And they said, our, our name is Legion, because there were many. Jesus was going to cast these demons out of the man, and they begged him, so, sir, please, please, don't send us into the abusos, the bottomless pit. Even the demons didn't want to go there. The bottomless pit is a real place. It's not just a state of mind. It's not just a level of consciousness. It is a literal, real place that even demons despise to go there. They don't want to go there. Instead, Jesus cast them into a large herd of pigs feeding nearby, which is interesting why a Jewish man would have a bunch of pigs, but anyway, <laughs> cast him into those, those pigs, and the entire herd of pig, pigs uh, ran into the lake, as, as you know, we call it the Sea of Galilee, but it's Freshwater Lake, and they drowned. You can read about this in Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 37. The Bible says demons are presently at work. Demons are alive and active today, causing depression, causing emotional distress, causing relational trauma. The Bible says in Ephesians 6, 12, for we are not fighting against, against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. The Bible says a number of horrible spirits are released, and the star, that's also that's called Satan, that had fallen to the earth, had a key and opened the bottomless pit during this judgment, during this trumpet judgment, verse 2, that we just read about. And when Satan opens up the bottomless pit, he is given the key by God to open up this pit. And when he does, smoke comes out in this bottomless pit that is sufficient to blot out sunlight for quite a while. The bottomless pit, if you will, is kind of a holding cell for evil spirits. Where is the bottomless pit located? Oh, I've read so many things. Microphones being sent down deep holes that have been dug into, plant, you know, into our planet. We don't know. It's all speculation. We don't know. And I would say don't waste your time trying to figure out where the bottomless pit is. But it's there. It is there. The Bible says... In verses 3 through 5, then locusts came from the spoke and descended on the earth, and they were given the power to sting like scorpions. They were told not to harm the grass or the plants or the trees, but only the people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were told not to kill them, but to torture them for five months with pain, like the pain of a scorpion sting. Apparently, these demons coming out of the bottomless pit take on the form of locusts. Now, regular locusts 
are, are grasshopper-like insects. Do you have locusts here in Colorado? Yeah? Okay. Okay. Well, we're new, so we're just learning. But they're, they're you know, kind of like grasshoppers. And as you know, regular locusts were feared by, by most civilizations during biblical times because one large swarm of locusts would swoop in and, and strip away almost all of the crops just in a matter of minutes and then, and then depart. But during that time, uh, well, then the people, famine would follow, would follow that. But during that time, female locusts, as they swarmed into these fields of crops, would lay huge quantities of, leg, of eggs that would go deep into the soil, and they would hatch in the spring, and the resulting larvae that would come from these eggs would eat whatever might have grown back. But, but these locusts, these locusts look like horses prepared for battle. The Bible says in, in, in verse 7, they had what looked like gold crowns on their heads. Their faces looked like human faces. They had hair like women's hair and, and teeth like the teeth of a lion. They wore armor made of iron and wings roared like the army of chariots rushing into battle. They had tails that stung like scorpions and for five months they had the power to torment people. Some people have said, well, this is the description of a helicopter. John had never seen a helicopter. Now, Sergeant Randy and I have seen a lot of Marine Corps helicopters, and it kind of describes a helicopter. In fact, Sergeant Randy worked on aircraft in the Marine Corps. And later on, he flew aircraft as a missionary in Africa. I can remember seeing the helicopters come in Vietnam, and I was so happy. We loved to see the helicopters come. The helicopters brought more ammunition. They brought water. They brought sea rations. And they brought mail. Oh, that was the best. They also evacuated our wounded. It was wonderful to see it. But the enemy, ooh, the NVA, they were not happy to see the helicopters come. The helicopters brought miniguns that shot, Randy can tell you how many rounds per second at the enemy. It was just a solid, like a, just a solid line coming down. They brought terror. Whether they're helicopters or not, we don't know. We're just going to have to take it at face value, but God can do anything. He can create anything. And due to these scorpion-like locusts, people will try to take their own lives. The pain will be so excruciating. Have you ever had just such a terrible, terrible pain? Maybe like being seasick. Have you ever been seasick? Oh, it's the worst. Seasick is the worst, but then you realize you think you're going to die. It's just, it's, it's really bad. But then there's something even worse than that. You realize you're not going to die. And that's even worse. You're going to have to live with it for a while. But the, they're, they're terrible. They try to take their own lives. They can't. And unlike regular locusts, these locusts have a king. The angel from the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. Greek, Apollyon, the destroyer. Verse 11, Satan's miss, miss, mission is to destroy. He wants to destroy everyone. He wants to destroy this church. Oh, how he would love to destroy this church. He would love to destroy your marriage. He would love to destroy your hope. He would love to destroy your health. He would love to destroy our nation. He just likes to destroy everything. Now, seven Old Testament books and every New Testament writer refers to Satan. Jesus referred to Satan in Matthew 13 and Luke 10, 
Luke 11. He's called Satan, which means the slanderer, Lucifer, son of the morning, Beelzebub, the lord of the flies in Matthew chapter 12, verse 24, Belial, which means lawless, 2 Corinthians 6, evil one, 1 John 5, 19, the tempter, 1 Thessalonians 5, or 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, the prince of the world, John 12, 31, the god of this age, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the prince and power of the air, Ephesians 2, 2, the accuser of the brethren, Revelation 12, 10, angel of light, that's false light, in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, He's called a serpent, Revelation 12, 9, a dragon, Revelation 12, 3. Satan was created as part of the angelic realm. We can read about that in Ephesians 6, 11, and 12, Ezekiel 24, verse 18. He had the highest rank of them all. He was the worship leader of heaven, Ezekiel 28, 12 through 14. But he is a murderer, John 8, 44. He is a liar, John 8, 44. He's an accuser, Revelation 12, 10. And he constantly goes before God as he is allowed and accuses you and me of the stupid things that we do. Well, maybe you don't, but I do. The stupid things that I do. He's the accuser of the brethren and the cistern. He's always accusing us. And he is our adversary, 1 Peter 5.8. He is limited by God. God gives him a leash, but he can go no further. Job, verse one, chapter 1, verse 12. He is not God's equal. 1 John 4.4. 4. Some people equate this great cosmic war between these two great forces, Satan and God. No, it's not. It's not. I think there's a movie coming out the war between Superman and Batman. Two great forces battling it out. Who will win? That's not the way it is with God and Satan. Satan is not omnipotent. He is, that's all-powerful. He is not omniscient. That's all-knowing. He is not omnipresent. That means being everywhere at every time. Only God is. Only God is. Satan can operate only as God allows him to operate. Now, believers, with God's help, can resist Satan. James 4, 7. The fall of Satan from heaven is described in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Satan is seeking to oppose God's plan by promoting evil in every way possible. He has just one thing on his mind, to destroy and to bring evil. He works indirectly through the world. He has great freedom here, power, John 12, verse 31, 1 John 5, 19, and the flesh, Galatians 5, 19 through 20, and I find in my own life that unlike Bill Cosby, if you're old enough to remember him, the devil made me do it, I find in my own life, it's not the devil that made me do it, it's my flesh, my pride, my bitterness, my anger, Whatever it is. Remember, the devil can only be one place at one time. Where is he today? Ukraine? Perhaps. Afghanistan? Maybe. I don't know. But he can only be one place at one time. It's not the devil that I'm so concerned about. It's my own flesh. The weakness of my own flesh. My old knuckleheadness. That's what I'm more concerned about. So he works through the flesh. Satan works through the evil world system. 
1 John 2, verses 13, verses, um, 13 through 15, to exploit the fleshly nature, we just talked about that, that's still within us. Romans 7, 18, Galatians 5, 19 through 20. He works directly by deception, temptation, attack, and possession. It's not a sin to be tempted. Jesus was tempted by Satan himself. Do you remember the story? Matthew 4, verses, 4, <clears throat> verses 1 through 11. That was not a sin. It's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin when we not fall into temptation, <clears throat> but <clears throat> excuse me, when we walk into that temptation knowing full well what we're going to do. He attempted to thwart, to thwart Christ's work. In John 8, 44, Matthew 16, 23, Luke 22, 31, he possessed Judas to accomplish the betrayal of Christ. John 13, 27, Satan binds unbelievers' minds, not Christians, not us, but he can bind our friends, our loved ones that are not believers to hinder their understanding of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, oh, I believe in Jesus, they say. I even go to church sometimes. I vote. I pay my taxes. I, I'm good. I, I, I've been married for so many years. I haven't cheated once. He binds unbelievers' minds to hinder their understanding of the gospel, which is giving one's life totally and completely to Jesus Christ. Satan uses persecution, Revelation 2.10, and false religions to hinder the effect of the gospel. Oh, we see a lot of that, Revelation 2.13. We see a lot of that right here in the Roaring Fork Valley, don't we? Robin and I were amazed the similarities between Maui, where we lived for 20 years, and then two years ago we moved to the Roaring Fork Valley, and we find crystals not only in Maui, but here too. And we find the spiritual people. Lots of spiritualism here, just like on Maui. A lot of similarities. That's a work of Satan. Satan uses persecution, false religions, to hinder the effect of the gospel. Satan tempts believers to pride. First Chronicles 21, verses 1 through 8. Materialism. John 2.15, James 5, 1 through 7, to immorality, not immortality, but immorality. 1 Corinthians 7, 5, to lie, wow, to lie, Acts 5, 3, to discouragement, 1 Peter 5, 6 through 10, and to be unforgiving, 2 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11. If we do any of those things, this is a work of Satan in our lives. Now he hinders the ministries of the believers. 1 Thessalonians 2.18, Revelation 2.10, we can read about that in the Bible. He promotes false teachings among believers. Just last week I read of a well-known musician, not magician, musician, Christian musician, one of the biggest names in the rap uh, music world. That, didn't, that, that was touring many churches 
and, and giving his testimony in church after church across the nation in Christian events and concerts and this and that. And he's, he's, he went online just last week or I guess two weeks ago saying, it was all phony. I deny my faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus has nothing to do with me and I have nothing to do with him. A work of Satan. A work of Satan. He promotes anger, bitterness, and division. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11. The Bible says that God created demons as a part of the original angelic realm in Colossians 1, 16. It's clear that Satan, the prince of demons, has a following of like beings. These like beings are called demons. Matthew 12, 24, Matthew 25, 41. Demons are described throughout the Bible. Daniel 10, 10 through 20, uh, Matthew 10, 1, Ephesians 6, 12. At the fall of Satan, many angels followed him in that rebellion when he wanted to be like God. He said, I shall be like the most high God. I can do this. I can do that. He had an eye problem, didn't he? Demons are morally wicked. They're called unclean spirits, Matthew 10, 1. They're called evil, Luke 7, 21. They're called wickedness and darkness in Ephesians 6, 12. If you're watching online tonight, we're so glad you are. And I've given a lot of scriptures that are all printed out, at least the references for you, so you can just contact the orchard, uh, go online, call it, contact the church office. We'll make sure you get a set of these notes. They're called deceitful. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15, they are immoral. Genesis 6, 4, Jude, verses 6 and 7. Demons are invisible, but they can appear. They can appear to, to, to people. Zechariah 3, 1, Matthew 4, 9 through 10, Revelation 9, 7, Revelation 16, 13 through 16. They know Christ's identity and they know his power. Mark 1, uh, 14, 34, Mark Five, six through seven. Demons know their own future judgment. They know what awaits for them. Matthew 8, 28 through 29. So they're going for it right now while they can. They're making hay while the sun shines. They can attempt to predict the future, but they're not always right. You remember the story in Acts chapter 16. Their knowledge is not infinite. They have great strength. Mark chapter 5, Acts chapter 19, Revelation chapter 9. They're involved in carrying out Satan's evil's, evil plan, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. They promote idolatry, Leviticus 17, 7, Deuteronomy 32, 17, Psalm 106, verse 36 through 38. They're deliberate in hindering the spiritual progress of believers every way they can. We're at war. We're at war. And there are forces of darkness, there are powerful forces that are a war against you and me personally. They promote false teaching. 1 Timothy 4.1 They can possess and afflict unbelievers causing dumbness, where they can't speak, Matthew 9, blindness, Matthew 12, convulsions, Mark 7, Matthew 17 and Mark 9, and self-injury. In other words, suicidal tendency or suicidal attempts. Mark 5 and Mark 9. Is that a problem today? We can blame it on whoever we want, but I believe a lot of it has a spiritual aspect, spiritual warfare. 
They can cause mental disorders, including withdrawal, nudity, filth, irrational behavior, and suicidal mania, mania, Luke 8 and Mark 9. They can inflict problems upon believers if allowed to do so by God. Remember Job, his troubles, Job 2, 7 through 9. Remember Paul's thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians 17, 7. Demons promote selfishness and division in the church. The church is the bride of Christ, and Satan would like nothing more than to maim, kill the bride of Christ. James 3. Now, a parallel passage to Revelation 9 is found in Joel 2. Historically, hang with me, gang. Historically, the prophecy of Joel 2 was fulfilled in Joel's day when Israel was besieged with locusts. Symbolically, the prophecy of Joel 2 was fulfilled in the year 722, that would be AD, when the Assyrians were marched south and carried, when the Assyrians marched south and, and carried the ten northern tribes into captivity. Prophetically, the locusts, as we've learned, representing demons that will be released from the bottomless pit take place that we've read in Revelation 9, 3 through 12. And yet there is hope. A wonderful promise is given to us by the same prophet, Joel. The Bible says in Joel 2, 25 through 26, the Lord says, I will give you back what you lost to the swarming locusts, the hopping locusts, the stripping locusts, and the cutting locusts, just to make sure he covers them all. It was I who sent this great destroying army against you. Verse 26, once again, you will have all the food you want. And you will praise the Lord your God who does these miracles for you. Never again will my people be disgraced. I love it. The Bible says whenever we obey scripture, whenever we sincerely repent, I'm not saying we believe in Jesus. The demons believe in Jesus. Whenever we sincerely repent and there's spiritual fruit in our lives, we're active in a local church and turn to the Lord, he not only forgives us, but he makes up to us that which was lost. I love it. It's a promise from God's word. God not only forgives us, but he restores to us what the locusts have taken. Joel 2.25. So even if you're 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 or 80, or 90 years old, whatever, whatever the case may be, when you choose to humble yourself and call out to the Lord, he will make up for lost time. I have experienced that in my own life. This year, Robin and I will celebrate our 22nd anniversary. He has restored to me abundantly beyond what I could have ever imagined. Our God is a good God. I testify to that personally. He has restored to me the years that the locusts have eaten. Now the gold altar that stands in the presence of God 
verse 13, had four projections, one at each corner of the altar. They were called horns. These four horns on the altar of the tabernacle, you know, they were on the altar of the tabernacle. The exact dimensions were given in Exodus 25, 26, and 27. They were used to sacrifice on the altar. These four horns had had a specific function. This was the place where sacrifices would be made, where the blood would be shed, and it represents the cross. Jesus Christ was tied to the altar of the cross. Way back in Exodus, these four horns on this altar where the sacrifice was tied down to represent the coming Messiah. Where Jesus was tied to the cross, the altar of the cross, not by the spikes that that pierced his hands and his, his wrists, as painful and as terrible as that was. No, that didn't keep him on the cross. It was the bands of love for you and for me that kept him on that cross. The Bible says in Mark 15, 31, the leading priests and teachers of religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe him. Even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. That's before one of them came to his senses and asked him for forgiveness. They failed to understand the people at the cross that day. They failed to understand and they were unable to comprehend that if he had saved himself, if Jesus had saved himself, he couldn't save them. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? Our time's up. So we'll end there. We'll end there. Well, next week when we come back, we're going to talk about the Euphrates River. We're going to talk about the Garden of Eden. And we're going to see four angels come upon the scene and then a mighty angel, more powerful than any angel we see in the Bible. It is going to be good news. I warned you tonight that we would talk about demons and about Satan. But just remember, gang, just remember, you have nothing to fear. The Bible says God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, of power, and of a sound, sound mind. A healthy mind. God has given that to us. The Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, referring to Satan. We do not need to be afraid of demons. It is impossible for demons to possess a believer. We've gone over it in detail tonight, and we will go over it again next week. You'll see that again. That is impossible. You do not need to be afraid of being possessed by demons. Will they attack you? Oh yeah. Will you be attempted? Oh yeah, Jesus was. Is it a sin to be tempted? Oh no, Jesus was without sin. But we don't need to be afraid. We can cast these demons out. Not that they come into our lives, but we can drive them away with one word. What's that word? 
Jesus. In the name of Jesus. It's not some magical spell. It's not some voodoo. It is the mighty, powerful name of Jesus. And one day, the Bible says, at that name, at that name of Jesus, one day every knee will bow. Even these despicable demons from the abusos. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But as we will see next week, it will be too late. Their destiny has been sealed in a place called hell. But us, our destiny has been sealed because our name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. I love it. And the Bible says it's not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. So if someone asks, are you filled with the Spirit? If your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you have the Holy Spirit. How do I know? The Bible tells me so. You have the Holy Spirit. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, only you know the answer to that. And that's why the Bible says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins and to cleanse us, refill us, renew us from all unrighteousness. And so that's something we do every day. But do you have the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. So some people say, oh, you're saved, but you need to get the Holy Spirit. Nope. When you're saved, you get the Holy Spirit. The question is not, do we have the Holy Spirit? The question is, does the Holy Spirit have you? Whew. I hope you're encouraged tonight. We spent a lot of time in darkness, but we're going to move on. We're going to move on, and the best is yet to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you allowed the bands of love to hold you to that cross for us because if you had saved yourself you would not be able to save us and so we thank you for what you did because of your love through your son Jesus Christ I ask your blessing on everyone here tonight on their families and on those watching across the country and in different countries in Jesus name amen God bless you guys, and uh, hope to see you next week. We'll continue, and we will finish the book of Revelation before we leave in six weeks for Israel. I promise you, we'll finish. We're almost halfway done, so we'll finish. God bless you.